WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Invasive plant species can choke out other native plants and change ecosystems in fundamental ways. But researchers are still working to understand the depth and breadth of those changes in terms of the entire community. For example, invasive Phragmites, not the Native American breed, but the invasive European one. This common reed found in wetlands actually affects the nesting behavior of water birds with its dense roots. Invasive Phragmites will also change the water chemistry how does this affect all the other life in the water, including benthic species? And does invasive Phragmites even change the hydrology, the way the water flows in and through a wetland? A single invasive plant species can significantly impact an entire ecosystem. That's according to Dr. Stacy Endress, a wetland ecologist at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. She's studying the impacts of invasive plants in order to advise land managers and the rest of us on the most effective ways to deal with these challenges. Today, we'll find out how she conducts her work partly through soundscapes from ecosystems. Yes, we will hear them. We will also find out why biodiversity is a concept that for her reaches beyond the natural world and into her own lab. Dr. Stacy Endress, welcome to Coastline. Thank you so much for having me today. You know so much about invasive Phragmites. Why is Phragmites, this one type of plant, so important? I would say for a couple of different reasons. I mean, there's so many invasive plants that are problematic in the United States and in North Carolina. This one is particularly fascinating to me. Um, first of all, I've moved around a lot in the United States, and every state I've been to, Phragmites is a problem. So it's definitely one of those invaders we think about that has a wide distribution. So it has problematic impacts in many different locations. And the other thing that's really interesting about it is that, you know, for a while it was a cryptic invader. So we actually didn't even know that it was invasive until people started to look around at the natural habitat and recognize, why are our Phragmites populations suddenly becoming so big and spreading so quickly? And then we had a researcher who came in, did some genetic work and said, hey, you know, we had this native species that's been here for a really long time in North America, but what we didn't realize is this introduced subspecies from Europe has come in and is starting to grow rapidly, really spread and outcompete native species, and it's kind of been hidden until we realize, ah, we have two subspecies, and one of them might have more problematic impacts than that native one that's been here for a long time. So it took some genetic work to figure out that there were two different species, a native and an invasive. It did, yes. It's kind of funny, too, because it's one of those things that now that we have more information, there are some things that visually we can look at to differentiate which one's the native versus introduced. Okay, so what are the differences? Like if I just, you know, lay person's eyeballs on them, sure. what should we look for? And I'll give you a little bit of a caveat because I would say that, you know, it's difficult even if you have these uh, interpretations of how to tell which one's which. So for example, something interesting about that native subspecies is that it, lose, it loses its leaves typically over the winter. And what that means when it loses its leaves is that its stem, that reed stem, actually becomes more exposed to the sun 
the sun makes that stem react with the chemicals in the plant and it actually almost turns sunburn. So it turns this beautiful shade of red, almost purple, and it's actually shinier on that stem. Um, so, you know, when and you tell people- This is in the winter. This is what we're looking for right. in the winter. Yeah. Okay. So in the winter, there's these color differences. Um, and you'll also see that sometimes the seed heads that they produce at the top just aren't as rigorous and big as those invasive subspecies. You might imagine, as I'm telling you these characteristics, that they're a little bit subjective. Something's more a little bit this color, more shiny, um, has less leaves. So it can be really hard if you don't have a lot of experience telling the two types apart. Though I would say that there are some awesome, awesome work going on in Canada as well in New York to try to put some quantitative numbers onto it to say, hey, can we actually say that this part of the leaf is one millimeter longer in the introduced subspecies than the native subspecies? So there's work being done and there are some visual cues, but it can be pretty tough to tell them apart. That's interesting. So they're actually really close visually, unless you're looking for some of those distinctions you just talked about. Yes, they can be. Now, you talked to me about cascading impacts of invasive species. And I thought that was such an interesting concept because certainly um, when we think about invasive species, we know sort of generally that they choke out other native species and that does affect the whole ecosystem. But talk about cascading impacts through the lens of Phragmites in particular. What what would be sort of at the top of the waterfall? <laughs> sure. And I don't know if it's necessarily all the way like a waterfall going from top to bottom, but just thinking more holistically about all these different impacts that it might have. So I get really excited when I see that researchers or managers have been taking data about how invasive plants are impacting the other plant species in that area. And that's really helpful to understand if these plants that we're calling invasive actually truly are outcompeting those native species, or if maybe they're just hanging out but not actually having that much of a problematic impact. So you're talking about the difference between just non-native and invasive. Like That's invasive right. means they're choking out what's native. Right. There's some, you know, you can always get into some controversy and heated discussions about what invasive actually means. But to me, it really means that they're growing at a rate that they're causing the populations of other native species we want to protect to decline over time. Time. And so they're really out-competing and causing a decline in their performance. That makes sense. Now, w- this may seem like a <laughs> ridiculous question, but why do we care? I mean, isn't there sort of an ebb and flow to an ecosystem, how it changes? Um, as an example, I think about foxes in uh, North Carolina. And hundreds of years ago, Perhaps they weren't here. Perhaps they were brought, and now they're part of the ecosystem. So why why do we care about these changes? That's a great question, and I'm going to go back because I feel like I didn't quite answer your, your question before about those cascading impacts. So I think one of the reasons we care is that it's not just that they're causing other plant populations to decline and we're losing diversity in that way, but we're also potentially losing diversity in our animal species, such as those birds that we want to protect, those frogs that we want to protect. And each of those species might be adding to the value of that ecosystem in terms of the services that that ecosystem provides to us as humans, whether that's protecting against hurricanes whether that's cleaning water quality, all of these things are things that I think most of us arguably would care about. Um, And we don't necessarily think about uh, ecosystem. This is sort of a new concept, I think, in the mainstream ecosystem services and the whole idea that the 
holistic nature of the ecosystem. It, it works together for a reason and does things like concrete things like clean the water and, and help keep our air cleaner. Can you talk a little bit about what we're losing around here? And we call this a biodiversity hotspot in southeastern North Carolina. And what do we know is going away? <laughs> What do we know? Um, well, I would say that we are a biodiversity hotspot in part because we have so many species that are native to the area, but also because we know that we're already losing so many of those native species, particularly those native plant species. So we've lost a lot of our habitat to urbanization and also other factors of rapid environmental change, such as symptoms of climate change. So thinking about Wilmington, North Carolina, where I am in particular, we're seeing a lot of effects on the coastline in terms of sea level rise, urbanization, all of these different things. And so um, if we lose biodiversity, we lose so many things we care about. Um, that could be just going out to a park and seeing the beautiful landscapes that we grow to depend upon for our relaxation, but also diversity matters so much for protecting its hurricanes, for providing the medicines we depend on, things that we don't even know that they're providing that we do depend on on our day to day. Why does diversity matter in terms of hurricane protection? How does the native landscape protect us during big storms? <laughs> That's such a complicated but good question. <laughs> yeah, it is complicated, of course. <laughs> yeah, and I would say this isn't my area of expertise, but there's a lot of people who do fabulous research looking at how wetland plants in particular, a lot of our native plant species, add value in terms of if we have X amount of these species across X acreage, how many dollars are we saving in terms of lost property value or protecting that from being lost property value in response to storms? Um, so it protects against those waves from being being quite as intense during these storm events or just during normal events. It also protects against those storm surges and other things that are more associated with specific hurricane events. Going back to the idea of Phragmites and, and what it's doing to our local ecosystems, when we spoke, and I, I mentioned this in the introduction, there's this idea that Phragmites could be changing the actual water chemistry. Can you talk about where scientists are in terms of what we understand about that? Sure. And I would say that this, again, isn't my absolute area of expertise, but it gets back to that idea of this holistic understanding of invasive plants more generally. It's not just what they're doing while they're growing in the growing season, but also during the winter, for example, when they drop their leaves, potentially, when they start to decompose into the soil. We know that oftentimes if a plant takes over the landscape and then that plant starts to decompose, and that's changing the landscape from having diverse plants that are decomposing to now just that one species with a very specific set of chemistry and decomposition qualities. It's going to change what that soil is, both in terms of its physical characteristics, but also that microbiota. And so that can have impacts in turn on what amphibians are able to grow and develop in that water, what birds are able to use that habitat. And that gets back a little bit, too, to those cascading impacts. So I think that when we think about what these impacts of invasive plants are, there's so many different things that are good to look at, whether that's what they're doing to other plant species, other animal species, water quality. And that's why I love to collaborate with lots of diverse people. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Coastline. It's an exploration with UNCW evolutionary ecologist Stacey Endress. Still ahead, how soundscapes are helping researchers in the field. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. 
You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Evolutionary ecologist Stacey Endress studies invasive plants and the effects they have on the environment, specifically now in and on wetlands. The whole process of figuring out what the impacts really are of invasions and figuring out how to deal with those impacts is the focus of her work as part of UNCW's Environmental Sciences Department. So, Stacy, you work to get this holistic understanding of uh, an ecosystem. You, you call it kind of trying to understand it at the community level. And researchers are now starting to put recording devices in ecosystems and get different information than they did with traditional methods. Can you talk about this sort of emerging idea of using soundscapes as a way of studying ecosystems? Sure, and I would say that, you know, researchers are increasingly recognizing that understanding the impacts of invasive plants in their natural habitats, we too often don't take data on that, and that responsibility falls on the land managers or the practitioners who are doing the management, um, who are really doing the boots on the groundwork. So. To me, as researchers, our goal is to say, how can we talk to those practitioners and say, what data do you need? And how is we as researchers, how can we help that? And so typically, land managers will go out maybe in the very early hours of the morning, tromping out into those wetlands, maybe scaring off the very bird species they're trying to detect, and they'll play callbacks. And so what that means is that they have recordings of just a few species of conservation value and concern. They'll play them out into that wetland habitat, and they'll sit and they'll listen and they'll see if anything calls back. And so that can be really effective at understanding if there's individual species that are present in a habitat, say one that's invaded by a plant versus not, but it has some limitations. So first of all, you might be scaring off those species. Second of all, you can only test for a few species at once. So our idea that people have been working on is what if you go out into the field just once every couple weeks, you place a stationary recorder out there to basically eavesdrop in on the entire soundscape of birds and animals and frogs and toads that are calling when you're not there to disturb them. And then we can go out every couple weeks, retrieve our SD cards, maybe replace those batteries, and we can look through that data, maybe manually to validate some of that, but ideally working with other collaborators who use AI and deep learning algorithms to help predict some of those species ID for us, um, but it allows us a way to look at the entire diversity of that community rather than just focusing in on one species at a time. So you you, as a, a wetland ecologist, for example, would be able to identify a certain kind of water bird call, but AI is going to help you with some of the things that you can't identify? Is that what you're saying? That's right. I have some excellent collaborators that I'll give a lot of credit for, for <laughs> them being very good at bird ID. Um, it's a complicated field and a, a true skill to have. So I can for sure ID some species, but I pull in some collaborators to help ID and validate that data going in. So they might go, for example, in our last project, I had someone help me um, validate the calls of every single call to species on 30 three hours of data. And then we compared that to the output of this deep learning algorithm and said, hey, for, you know, 80% of these species, the algorithm's really good at correctly predicting what it is. For these other 20%, we need to do a little more work on improving that algorithm, or we actually need to go through and validate those individual calls by hand, because the AI just isn't there yet, but maybe someday it will be. Yeah. 
Sounds like it's on its way. So <laughs> speaking of sound, let's listen to what you, well, why don't you describe what you labeled as a typical Phragmites soundscape? Is this what we're about to hear, invasive Phragmites, and, and what we would hear around it? And where was this recorded? That's right. And so I'm taking some of these recordings right now down here in Wilmington, North Carolina. The recording we're going to listen to is actually from my work up in New York State. So it is in a stand of invasive Phragmites. And what you might notice is that it's pretty quiet for a dawn chorus. So there's a few species that are in there. I think you might hear some red-winged blackbirds, maybe some common yellowthroats. But overall, there's not a lot of diversity of sound and therefore diversity of species in the specific habitat. Okay, let's listen. And what was that? Red-winged blackbird we just heard? Mm -hmm, The one that kind of ends with the buzz. So that buzz that just came again, that's a red-winged blackbird. Okay. So you hear a few calls, but, you know, mostly they're probably the same individual just calling again a couple times. Okay. And again, we're with Dr. Stacy Endress of UNCW's Environmental Sciences Department talking about what we can learn from these soundscapes, just leaving a recording device somewhere in the field. And so you said we didn't really hear a diversity of, of creatures in this soundscape. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a little hard to tell for, of course, just an eight-second segment. But the idea is if we look at across the entire breeding season of these bird species or frog species and look at the diversity across these habitats, how does it differ or does it differ between these areas that are invaded or not or maybe managed or not? Do we see a return of species diversity when we manage for these introduced plants? Because that's really the ultimate goal of management. So let's compare what we just heard to a more natural native kind of ecosystem. And then on the other side of it, you can tell us what we heard. Let's listen. So the the bird, first of all, there were a couple of birds in there. There were a couple of birds. You might have, if you were listening carefully, seen that we also had our red-winged blackbirds in this ideal habitat that had been identified by managers that was actually located very close to where that recording of that invasive plant stand was that we listened to just before. Um, but there were also more, more bird species. So you might have picked up that there were some swamp sparrows in there. Um, there was a click that happened, like click, 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 click. Yeah. That's our Virginia rail species. I think I heard an American bittern in there, too. It's kind of a deep gulping sound if you're familiar with that bird species. Um, So definitely some more diversity of the birds. And you might have also captured that there were some gray tree frogs. And in the lower register, there was also some sounds from our green frogs as well. No bullfrogs. There might have been a bullfrog, but I honestly didn't capture it in that one. So I might have not been listening carefully enough, but maybe some (laughs) of our audience members were. (laughs) Well, maybe we'll hear from them about that. So You just listed a whole bunch of species, and you're saying that because we don't have the invasive plant in that that particular ecosystem, we have greater biodiversity. Well, that's the assumption, and we're still processing the data right now to see if that's actually true or not. Um, From 
the individual experiences in the field and learning from the practitioners who work in these sites every day, that seems like it's probably the case. But it'll be really interesting in the next couple of months to see how that data shakes out in terms of which specific species, for example, are in certain habitats, but not others. These recordings were made on land. That's right. But there's, there's another way that researchers are starting to record ecosystems. Can you talk about this underwater recording? Sure. Um, so I'm very excited to be collaborating with one of my colleagues in environmental sciences, Oscar Backstrom. And, you know, he's been doing these underwater recordings using something called hydrophones. So you can actually submerge them in the water and listen at what's going on below that water line. So the idea that we have is what if we pair these together? What if we look at what's happening in that community, both above water and below water at the same time in response to disturbances such as invasions? Now, you have a recording that was made at the Curie Beach Pier. Is this underwater? That's right, as I think that you'll probably be able to hear from the recording. Okay, so let's listen. And while we're listening, maybe you can tell us the elements that we're hearing, some of the um, the major elements, because there's a, there are so many levels here. Sure. But let, let's listen. So you already might be hearing the sound of what sounds like oil heating up in a pan. You could hear some waves in there, too, kind of giving that cue as an underwater recording. So that snapping sound that you hear is from our, oh, and there was a knock. That knock was our red drum fish species. There we go again. And that oil frying sound, that's actually our snapping shrimp. So Those our, are shrimp? Yeah, they're Making shrimp. Making that sound. Um, so, you know, they're not my area of expertise, but talking to people who work with these species, what they're doing is they actually have asymmetrical claws, and they snap those claws together for different reasons, which forms these bubbles. And what you're hearing is actually those bubbles popping. And so that's the sound that sounds like that oil frying in the pan. Is, is this communication for them or is it protection? What are they doing when they're snapping? You know, again, I only know what I've looked up from other researchers, but it seems like it could be a whole variety of reasons. Everything from stunning their prey to communication um, to a lot of different reasons. And then that... Um, burp, burp. You do that better than I do. (laughs) But that so that's a fish. That's a red drum talking. That's right. I think that people, maybe people who who dive or spend more time below water, uh, recognize these sounds. But for a lot of us, you know, there's this entire soundscape that we don't think about that's happening um, right in these places that we use every day. Now, what do we know? Just from this particular recording? Like, what was the purpose of it? Is it to look for invasive species underwater? Or what? <laughs> what is this person doing? Absolutely. So um, like what I do, but in different contexts, um, Dr. Backstrom is really looking at how these ecosystems change over time in response to disturbances. So I'm hoping to pair up with him in the future. And what we're working on is finding locations that on land have invasions such as Phragmites. But he's also asking questions about other types of disturbances, like what happens when we have beach renourishment projects. So a lot of the data he's collecting are happening before or during beach renourishment which if you're not familiar with, we often have to 
to bring in sand to replenish our beaches around the coast of North Carolina. And so now what he's done is he has this baseline data to say, how is that impacting our benthic community? So that community that's happening below water in these habitats. And hopefully I'll be able to add some above water recordings to help expand that answer a little bit more in the future. And this is something that is becoming, at least in in mainstream discussion about renourishment, uh, of more concern. Just at, really, it's sort of a new idea, I think, in the mainstream to talk about what is happening with the benthic community when there's dredging going on in a particular area. It's definitely a hot topic. Um, I think that whenever you're thinking about environmental impacts, there's all these different balances about, you know, urbanization and the things that we want as we're growing our populations as humans, but also wanting to make sure we're doing the best job possible protecting that natural habitat that we're a part of. Now, Dr. Stacy Endress, you are a wetland ecologist. That's your title at UNCW. Um, you describe yourself also as an evolutionary ecologist. What's the difference between the two ideas? That's a great question. And I would say um, less than a difference. Uh, there's a lot of overlap. So there, there are different titles that, to me, encompass part of what I do. So my background really is in evolutionary ecology. That's what I got my PhD in um, out at Colorado State University. And a lot of what I do um, really gets back to this fascination of invasive plants representing this grand ecological evolutionary experiment. Because essentially, if we think about introduced plant populations, so a lot of our introduced plants, like Phragmites, were introduced from Europe. So in Europe, their native habitat, they experience all these specific sets of climates, specific types of insects that feed on them, specific environmental factors. And when they're brought over to North America, they now experience all these different environmental cues. And so what that means from that evolutionary ecology perspective is now we have this really fascinating experiment where we have two sets of plant populations from the same species that have experienced two very different habitats. So it's a way to look at rapid adaptation to a changing environment, which I think is going to be increasingly important as we know that we're living in a world where things are changing so rapidly. And an important part of your work is taking what you learn from your research and using it to advise what you call land managers. And I guess anybody who's looking for advice on on what do I need to do about some of these invasive plants. So you're working with folks who who are creating a living shoreline now at the battleship. That's right. And this was just covered by the Washington Post. It was, recently. yes. That was, that was a big deal. Um, explain to us what the project is and then how you're hoping to advise on some of this. Absolutely. And I would just reframe that a little bit just because I feel like so often it's the practitioners who are advising me, right? Um, so I use, I like to think of it as co-production of research where really from the very beginning, I'm asking the people who are doing the boots on the groundwork, what do you need us to help you to do? Um, and this is one of these partnerships where we're working with a lot of different organizations, including even within the university, a lot of different labs. Um, so within the environmental sciences, I know Dr. Yuli has been really instrumental in starting up this partnership, as has the Benthic Ecology Lab and Biology, and other people um, are part of that expanding group. 
But what's really exciting about this project is we're working with the battleship to try to address um, the impacts of rising sea level. In particular, if you've ever been to the battleship, you may notice that you want to be really careful about where you park your car, especially during high tides. So they have some massive um, sunny day flooding events, as we do in lots of areas of North Carolina and Wilmington. It's becoming a lot more common. Yeah, and I'm so excited that they've decided one approach to address this is to use a natural solution and to install a living shoreline. So for those of you who aren't familiar with what that means, um, typically, you know, there's different ways that we can address this issue of rising sea level to try to prevent those flooding events. We can use hardened structures or semi-hard structures, so actually putting up, for example, concrete barriers or um, some other type of sill. Maybe you use a combination of bags filled of oyster shells or something to prevent that wave energy, prevent that flooding from reaching the land. Um, another approach that we can do that is receiving increasing interest is trying to go back to more of these natural habitats, like planting those native plant species that are adapted to exist in these environments and help build up the soil over time, as well as help prevent those storm surge events and those flooding events on a day-to-day basis. And so I'm really excited that at the battleship, they're installing what will be, I believe, one of the biggest living shorelines in North Carolina. And our role as a labs at UNCW and with some of our collaborators is to go in and take baseline data. Um, So what's really cool at the battleship is that we have the site where we're going to put these native plants. We also, like so many areas, have a big stand of invasive Phragmites. So we can look at the impact of this invader, how that changes with the living shoreline. We can also look at how other things change as well. So how those native plants survive in that living shoreline, how they impact flooding, how they impact the water quality in that area, and how they impact, again, that more holistic understanding of the entire community of the plants, the animals, and everything else that that might encompass. So there is invasive Phragmites at the battleship. There is. Yes, amongst the alligators, if you look out, there are some invasive Phragmites. And we, we also want to explore some of the more creative approaches to managing invasive plants because herbicides aren't always the answer. Is mm. that right? I'm, I mean, do herbicides have a role in getting rid of something like invasive Phragmites? Absolutely. I would say that, you know, if we're thinking about managing invasive plants, the best thing we can do is have a diverse toolbox. So we need to have a lot of different tools to be able to manage different invaders in different situations. And there is some data to show that in certain situations, herbicide can be really effective at decreasing the abundance of the invader. That said, I think what we maybe need to do a better job of moving forward is comparing all the alternatives. So regardless of whether we're thinking about using herbicide or biological control, which I'd be happy to explain in a minute, or other types of management, or maybe the alternative is doing nothing, I think we need to go through that thought process of what is the situation now, how might that community and that invasive plant change with that management, And are we actually taking the data to say whether our assumptions match up with reality? Because if they don't, that's when we need to go in and change our management strategy. And we do want to hear about biological control and and how that might work soon. You're listening to Coastline after this short break. Biocontrol, what it is, why it's controversial. UNCW professor Stacey Endress will also talk about becoming a scientist 
and why diversity in the lab is just as important to her as biodiversity in nature. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Evolutionary ecologist Stacy Endress of UNCW's Environmental Sciences Department is exploring how invasive plants are affecting North Carolina wetlands. She's also looking at creative approaches, including biocontrol, for dealing with some of these impacts. So help us understand, what is biological control? That's a great question. And I'm actually going to go all the way back to one of the first questions you asked me and that I didn't quite answer about, you know, what happens when you get things like foxes that over time they kind of get integrated into the ecosystem. And biocontrol kind of has to do with that idea because a big reason why a lot of invasive plants are invasive and have these negative impacts is that when they're introduced to a new place like North America, they often escape many of their predators. So if you're a plant, you're often escaping many of the insects that have co-evolved to feed on you and only you for thousands of years. And so what that means is that if you don't have things eating you, well, you can grow really fast and really big and probably spread really quickly, which is a hallmark of what it means to be an invasive species. So biological control is taking this idea and saying, well, what if we go back to the native range of that plant and we search for these insects that have co-evolved with these plant species for thousands of years? And then we actually find the ones that are hyper-specialists, so they only feed on that plant species, and they're really effective at decreasing how fast they grow and how many seeds they produce. And then after a series of really rigorous tests to make sure, yes, indeed, it only feeds on that plant species, and it could be effective at decreasing that performance, then it goes through an approval process, and maybe only then can you actually get some of these species approved to be released in their introduced range, such as North America, and be reassociated with this plant to ideally sustainably keep their populations down to lower levels over time. So what if researchers are wrong about the bug only feeding on that one plant? And what if the the, the insects that would feed on this invasive plant come here and they say, oh, that looks really good too, and it's digestible? I mean, does that happen and is that a concern, unintended consequences? So I would say, um, yes, it's absolutely a concern. And unfortunately, I would say that that's kind of dominated the narrative of biological control, especially for people that don't necessarily work in the field. And I think that that's okay because there is risk that's associated with all these different management approaches. But what I caution people is ask these same questions, these great questions about risk for all the different management approaches that we do. So ask if we spray herbicide, what might be the consequences of that for humans, for those native plant species? Are they going to be able to recover over time? Or is the soil legacy where maybe that's impeding these these plants being able to grow back over time? And what's the consequences of doing nothing? Is leaving that invasive plant, which we know has negative impacts in some cases, going to be more harmful or less harmful than doing 
doing this approach. And the other part I would say is that unlike these other management techniques, we have worked out very rigorous protocols to do this as safely as possible. There always is going to be some level of risk, but I would say as a scientist, I feel very confident in the procedures that we go through to make sure that yes, indeed, is only gonna feed on that plant species before we release it in North America. And that's not just up to individual researchers. I would say that usually it can be anywhere from you know, five to 20 years of research then get submitted to a committee of experts and policymakers across North America to approve, open that up for comments from outside experts, and then only then can it be approved for release. So there is a rigorous process that goes through before it goes from theory to practice. For sure. And I know probably some of you might be sitting in the background thinking of the horror stories that are often talked about where things go wrong. But I would say that thinking specifically about biocontrol of plants, so bringing insects in to feed on invasive plant populations, what we know is that with the policies we have in place and have had in place for some time, we haven't had any examples of where things have gone wrong in that way. And in fact, the past examples of where they have gone wrong, if they have been released following our current protocols, that never would have been happening. Happening, We never would have approved them for release in the first place. So I actually do feel pretty good about biological control of plants in North America. But again, I think that these are questions that we should be asking about all of our different management approaches. Such an interesting point, especially where herbicides are concerned. We recently planted some seedlings last year, uh, thanks to TreeFest, which you're going to tell us about soon, uh, an opportunity to get free native trees and plant them in your backyard. So that's what we did. Uh, We abut a stormwater retention pond. The pond management company sprayed herbicide around the pond, and the overspray killed our longleaf pine. So that's an example, I guess, of not looking at some of these other consequences from with different types of controlling of these plants. Absolutely. And again, there's so many examples of when management can absolutely have the desired outcome. But I think as researchers, we need to do a better job helping the people who are applying these methods to make sure that we collect the data to see when it works and maybe when it doesn't. And we need to reassess how we're doing that specific type of management. Do you have a theory on why there's Uh, less resistance to using things like herbicides and perhaps fewer protocols in place when it comes to testing those unintended consequences versus um, people who are super conservative about biocontrol? Oh, that's such a good question. I feel like, you know, that's where we need the social scientists. And there are a lot of people who do this type of research. I wish I knew the answer, um, but we all have diverse backgrounds and experiences that make us feel certain ways. Um, and I, I don't have an answer to that. That's fair. <laughs> that, 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 was a, that was a reach as in, a, in a question. Uh, I want to just talk briefly about you even becoming a scientist, because you didn't plan to turn into a scientist. How did you, when did your interest get sparked in science? How did that go? Yeah, that's, that's um, a really... Uh, I think funny way to put it because that's absolutely right. I, you know, went to college and I was still, you know, all over the place in terms of what I wanted to do. I knew I had a love of nature, but 
I also had so many other interests. I loved to write. I loved music. I loved all these different things. Um, and it took me a while to realize that science could be a way to do all of those things and collaborate on these diverse interests. Um, and I think there's a couple different moments that stick out to me that really sparked my interest in the field. The first was when I was in college and started learning really about what invasive species were and started looking for them in the landscapes. And at the time I was in New York State and I was seeing a lot of retention ponds and areas along the roads that were full of native cattails. And even just in the four years that I was there for my undergraduate, I could see them being taken over by that invasive Phragmites, um, which was really cool to observe and really sparked my curiosity about what other impacts this invasion was having. Um, and then I guess the second thing is once I got into invasive species research, I remember volunteering at the Smithsonian um, Environmental Research Center in Edgewater, Maryland, being out there as a volunteer some of my first couple weeks, and um, somebody went by in a canoe with a young girl, and she just shouted out, look, it's a scientist, mom. And I got so excited about, <laughs> hey, you know what? I am a scientist. I'm starting to ask questions that we don't have the answers to. And there's something really invigorating about that. Yeah. And so you work to bring in other folks into your lab. You, you have a lab at UNCW. That's right. And so why is diversity in your lab so important to you? What, what does that do for you besides just um, being virtuous? <laughs> Absolutely. I would say that rather than being virtuous, which I'd, I'd like to be, but I would say it's also extremely selfish. Um, science is all about diversity. And if we think about invasive plant research, well, these are big, complex problems that affect diverse people in diverse ways. And to be able to have a solution, we need to work with big groups of diverse people to get to that understanding. And so I try to address that in terms of who I bring into my lab as well. Unfortunately, I think for scientists in particular, it can be a pretty privileged field to get into. So if I talk to a lot of my colleagues and I say, what was your first experience? I just talked about one of my first experiences. I mentioned it was volunteering. A lot of people can't necessarily afford, for example, to volunteer to get the experience to get into the field. So that's part of what I address. Another part of what I address is just thinking about once people are hired, being strategic about who's hired, how can I make them feel included and safe in the research that we do do? Um, so my students have been fabulous at helping me do this. I have a great set of undergraduates and graduate students who really are the ones that make the research happen. And they're also helping put together evidence-based protocols of how do we do our field work safely, how do we make each other feel included, and even creating feedback forms for each other about, hey, what went well this week? What didn't do well? What we, can we do better? Um, and I Definitely, this is such a huge field I could talk about for hours and hours. I won't go on at length, but I would say there's great people working on this, including in North Carolina. I know that there's um, two scientists who have associations with um, NC State University uh, that created Field Inclusive, which is now a nonprofit that has a lot of information and resources about how to support researchers, particularly students from marginalized identities in their lab. Um, and they link to a lot of other great resources about that as well. You mentioned that invasive plants and changes to ecosystems affect people. And we've talked a lot about changing the water chemistry from invasive Phragmites and perhaps negatively perhaps impacting nesting water birds because of the dense roots of Phragmites. But how, how would this affect people 
And why are people from marginalized populations likely to be more affected in some instances? Again, this is such a big field of research that there's lots of excellent people working on it. I'm so glad that they are. Um, but I would say, you know, just a, a brief overview that if we think about areas where we have the most problems with invaders, it's areas of high disturbance. Maybe that's high levels of flooding. Maybe that's high levels of something else. Those also typically are associated with areas that are, um, you know, typically these marginalized communities and may not have as much money or resources to address these management problems in the first place. So I think that those are just some of the factors, but that's really only scratching the surface of what, what um, could be an issue. Sure. And just with the few minutes we have left, I'd love to get to some practical nuggets that, that people can actually take away from this conversation. I mentioned TreeFest, which I participated in last year, was a Great. beneficiary of. What is TreeFest? <laughs> Great question. So this is uh, the result of a collaboration across a lot of different individuals and groups. I know that Amy Long within Environmental Sciences is one of those people who helps coordinate this event. It's in collaboration with NC Extension. And this year, for example, um, I'm just going to check my notes about the date, but sure. Friday, January 19th, and Saturday, January 20th, 20th, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., or as supplies last, at Independence Mall inside the J.C. Penney Corridor. Um, what they have is they have a whole series of native plant species that you can come and get and get up to five of those for your household to plant. So when you think about what can I do to help prevent the spread or the impact of invasive species, um, one of the things is plant native. Um, and this is one of the ways that you can do it for free and help get some of those benefits of those native plants in your own backyard. And so one of the key ideas here is that your own backyard matters. It does. I mean, if you think about the United States and North Carolina in particular, invasive species don't pay attention to our boundaries, right? And most of the, the area in North Carolina is actually privately owned. So if you think about addressing these big issues, I think we really have to pull private landowners and different stakeholders into the conversation. Phragmites has been, the invasive kind, has been such a good example of what invasive species can do. But what are some of the other invasive plants affecting our ecosystems here? Oh, there's so many. Um, and I know that sometimes it can be difficult to find updated lists of what the invasive species are in your state. Um, I do know that the North Carolina Invasive Plant Council has a website. And if they haven't already, they'll soon be updating their list of invasive species of concern, invasive plant species of concern in the state. So I'd encourage you to check that out. Some of the ones that I work with, um, I also look at knotweeds, which are more of a freshwater riparian invader. So they're alongside the of streams and creeks and rivers and things like that. I also have heard a lot about other species that I'm just learning about because I've only been in North Carolina for about a year and a half. But this is part of me learning from um, people who have that local experience and are practicing this management techniques. So um, looking at things like privet, for example, or you hear a lot about beach vitex here, um, there's a lot of invasive species that are having impacts in this area. And people can also work as citizen scientists in a way. Absolutely. And contribute to this. 
For sure. I mean, I would encourage everybody. Uh, there's so many local resources and ways you can get involved. Just a simple Google about invasive plants. You can look up, first of all, what not to plant in your garden. But you can also Google invasive plants and citizen science and look up what apps you might download to your phone to take pictures of where you see um, incidents of invasive plants to help report their spread and distribution. That can be really helpful for understanding how to manage these species. Is there anything that you think is sort of a common misconception that you just wish people understood about invasive plants and and how they can make a difference? I mean, if you could leave people with one idea. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) that's such a great question. And I would say that, you know, despite me focusing my research on really trying to decrease the negative impacts of invasive plants and trying to have the most effective management of those invasive plants, it's just to encourage people that they're just plants. I know that there's a lot of um, weight that comes with calling a plant invasive and making sure that we have the data to show that the plant truly is having negative impacts before we invest in managing it. Because it could be that it's just here from an introduced range, but it's really not having a problem in terms of its impact on those native plant or animal species. And so we will certainly want to check in with you again as you learn about some of these impacts. And we will include links on this episode page for resources that we talked about today. But is there any other organization or group that you would like to make sure people are aware of? Um, I think, you know, there's so many out there. One that's interesting is the Southeast Regional Invasive Species and Climate Change Management Network. And so that's actually pulling together managers and scientists to help address these issues in the face of climate change. And we will have a link to that. And that is this edition of Coastline. Dr. Stacy Endres of UNCW's Environmental Sciences Department, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.